Most of the time when we do these interviews, we try to pick one or maybe two subjects to talk about with our guest so we can really get into detail. But sometimes we're joined by someone with such an eclectic set of interests, we have to take a different approach. Such is the case with our guest today, whether it be the impact of protests on voting or the effect religion has on economic growth or the power of propaganda to promote violence. Perhaps the only unifying theme among these various research topics is the power of creative applications of quantitative analysis to provide answers to questions some may have thought unquantifiable. Hello and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and you can subscribe to us on iTunes or elsewhere by visiting hkspolicycast.org. And you can find us every week in Boston Globe Opinion and on Twitter at PolicyCast. Today we're joined by HKS Associate Professor David yanagazawa Drott. Professor, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Matt. Glad to be here. So I have to say, the diversity of topics that you've mm-hmm. tackled in the last few years uh, didn't make my job easy trying to pin <laughs> down what exactly we were gonna we were gonna talk about. Uh, sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mentioned a few of those topics just a moment ago. Is there a common thread that you see connects all of these things? I mean, there are some common threads. I think, uh, and I think you sort of hit upon it a little bit, which is sort of the methodological approach to these questions. Um, so, essentially, all of my research is using quantitative methods, using data to address sort of research questions that I think are not particularly new or novel, but research questions for which we don't have really good answers to yet. Um, and so, I think th- that's maybe the unifying theme. Of course, there's also some some conceptual connect connections across the different sort of research projects that I have. Uh, so mostly I do research in, in sort of political economy or political economics and, and development economics. Uh, and these two kind of fields uh, sort of overlap uh, to some degree, depending on the specific project. These uh, the, A lot of the subjects are uh, geographically disparate. They're, mm-hmm. they're really all over the map. Uh, I guess literally, no pun yeah. intended. Uh, <laughs> but um, how do you come about, um, you know, finding these questions and, and pursuing the answers? You know, that's a great question. I think it's sort of, uh, it's almost a bit opaque. Where do the research questions come from or the, or the ideas? I think often it's just sort of you ha- you're having a lunch, lunch conversation with a, a colleague or something and you're talking about it could be something contemporary that you read in the news, some, some political thing you know, crises or event that's going on right now. And you're thinking about the sort of the broader forces at play and kind of what we know from research before. And sort of as you're having this conversation, every now and then there's like a re- good research question that comes out of it. Uh, often, you know, uh, you know, nine out of 10 times or, or 95 out of 100 times, there's no good research question coming out of it. But mm-hmm. every now and then there's sort of a nice idea and uh, that you realize that maybe it's not, nobody's really looked into in, in the proper way using sort of the methods that I mentioned before. Mm-hmm. So one of your papers from last year uh, analyzed the Tea Party movement, mm-hmm. and you were trying to understand whether protests inform public policy or whether uh, it was right. more just reflection of public sentiment. I was particularly struck by a conclusion that you had about the weather at the first Tea Party protests <laughs> and how, uh, how the weather was uh, actually reflected how well uh, Tea Party candidates did in the right. election, what was it, uh, uh, a year later? Right. So the weather is sort of, uh, it's a little bit of sort of a methodological trick to get at a broader question that we're interested in. So so if we can just take, sort of take a step back a little bit and let me explain sort of 
where we were coming from. Um, so there's a long history of, sort of of political change being associated with political protests. So even if you go back to, say, the French Revolution, actually, that started off with peaceful, peaceful protests, um, initially at least. Um, you saw, you know, the civil rights movement. Um, you saw large-scale protests there across the country in the U.S. And that was later followed by different changes in the law. Um, of course, more recently, you've seen kind of the Arab Spring movement. Um, you also saw uh, political change uh, um, in the Arab world, although it's still sort of, I think the jury is still sort of out exactly sort of what will, what will come out of that. But, mm-hmm. but nevertheless, historically, we've seen these sort of uh, episodes of political change being associated with political protest in, in one shape or another. But it's really unclear... I think what the exact role is of of the political protest, and what in particular whether the political protest caused or contributed to the political change, and sort of the fundamental, sort of conceptual and methodological problem here is that political protest can it potentially just reflect political views or political opinions of of the population. Uh, so, uh, but not necessarily affect anybody else's uh, you know view. So, mm-hmm. if, if if a bunch of people is out protesting for political for a political cause, uh, maybe nobody else is really convinced by the message sort of, of of the protesters. Maybe policymakers aren't really affected by the fact that people are out protesting. So that's sort of the alternative sort of explanation. Mm-hmm. So so it's really challenging to sort of disentangle the causal effect of you know people protesting, and that's sort of where the weather comes in in this particular case. So the Tea Party movement basically started early two thousand nine. Uh, and the really the first big sort of nationwide protest happened on tax day uh, 2009, so April 15th. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we use, basically think of a, think of a sort of r- ideal experiment. If you know, you're a social scientist, you could sort of run the experiment you want. Basically, you want to see, well, if you can randomly sign a, a, lot, a lot of people showing up to, to the rallies in, in some city, but not in some other cities, how does that impact local politics sort of mm-hmm. going forward? We think weather gives us a very nice natural experiment in that sense, sort of. Um, because it's a sunny day, people are going to show up. Right, and, so and people really dislike protesting when it's raining. <laughs> <laughs> right. So uh, that was sort of the, f- the, the, the main insight, sort of. Uh, and, and, and so we collected data on, on weather and rain across the U.S. on this particular day. Uh, and we uh, we find that, you know, first of all, if, if like I said, if it, if it rained, uh, many fewer people showed up uh, mm-hmm. to this protest. But then we trace sort of local politics over time, uh, and we see eventually, you know, the, the movement starts to grow in those places that had uh, a big uh, turnout during the protest. Uh, so you see more local organizers, for example, so signing up through social media saying, hey, I'm, I'm organizing the Tea Party movement locally, you know, mm-hmm. contact me if you want to sort of join the effort. Uh, we saw much more sort of political donation being... Um, uh, that come that comes uh, from these places, um, but then so the movement grew. Uh, but then we s- we looked at um, the elections, the midterm elections in two thousand and ten. Uh, in particular, we looked at sort of the Republican vote share. And as you know, if you know, the Tea Party movement was very much sort of a conservative, social social conservative, fiscal conservative movement. Uh, so it's sort of natural to think that it would sort of have this right wing. Uh, potentially this right-wing shift. Um, and, and, and that's exactly what we saw. So in those places that sort of randomly had large protests, uh, you saw a pretty big boost for the Republican Party in the midterm elections. Um, uh, 
So that's sort of one of the key results uh, that we have in the paper. What other findings did you did you come up with about the Tea Party that well, came so out of that? so for example, we we looked at surveys uh, on political opinions, um, and you see so when you ask people locally um, in those places that had big protests versus those that had small protests, you see a, a greater support for some politicians like Sarah Palin, sort of conservative mm-hmm. politicians like that, uh, less support for President Obama. Um, you saw uh, people were less favorable towards uh, high marginal taxes. Um, so you, you saw a, ch- a shift in, in, in public opinion as well. Uh, and this was not, you know, these effects were so large that it was not just the protesters themselves that, you know, somehow their views changed by showing up. No, it's sort of this this um, sort of conservative swing affected the, the local population mm-hmm. more broadly. So that's, that's another thing that we found. Was, were there other variables that happened to even the field? Like, you know, uh, maybe uh, obviously in Nevada, there would yeah. have been a, it was probably going to be pretty good weather. Right. Um, but there's also a fairly sizable conservative uh, right. movement Very there. Very good question. Yeah. Um, whereas, you know, maybe in Seattle, it's more <laughs> likely to rain, right. uh, but also it's a, there's a fairly liberal population there. Um, were there any? Uh, That's an excellent question. Have you taken stats? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but so this is the classical sort of omitted variable bias problem, uh, which is look maybe the places that saw good weather are different from the places that saw bad weather, and mm-hmm. sort of maybe um, you know maybe maybe they we saw a higher Republican voter for other reasons than the protests. Um, so we do a few things to sort of get at that, and that, that doesn't seem to be an issue. So first of all, we control for uh, the likelihood of rain in April. So we basically are comparing places of equal likelihood of rain, and then on this particular day, it happened to rain in place A, but not in place B. Mm. So we're so, sort of comparing a, a Seattle, uh, which is rainy, to another equally rainy place in the U.S. Uh, and so and, and sort of that's sort of the first comparison. The other thing is that we can look at um, voting patterns before the protests mm-hmm. and see if they were in a different across those, you know, nice weather, bad weather places. And, and we don't find uh, differences sort of, sort of in presidential vultures for the Republican Party, you know, in 2000. Um, and eight, uh, for example, and going going further back as well. Mm-hmm. You also looked at the effectiveness of propaganda mm-hmm. and hate propaganda in particular uh, to promote violence. And you did this by looking at Rwanda in 1994 during mm-hmm. the genocide and the power of a radio station mm-hmm. there. Uh, was it R- RTLM? Right. And how it was able to impact rates of violence. Mm-hmm. How how, we, how did you come about this? Right. So I was really interested in sort of understanding this genocide, which was this horrific event in 1994, basically for 100 days, um, almost a million people were killed, which is, you know, higher sort of intensity of killings compared to even the Holocaust, for example. So very high sort of high violence episode. And what's so very disturbing, I think, about the genocide is that often this violence would have a local nature, sort of Hutu neighbors going out and massacring uh, their Tutsi neighbors, people they have lived with uh, for years, you know, together in the same village. I th- and so, so I was very interested in sort of understanding how could that come about. And as you read up on the genocide, one of the factors that you often see mentioned uh, is, is the role of, of propaganda and the role of a particular radio station called RTLM in spreading sort of hate, spreading propaganda, basically encouraging people to participate uh, in the killings, to attack Tutsis. Uh, Tutsis were often described as as cockroaches, for example, so very dehumanizing language. Uh, mm-hmm. So a lot of fear, a lot of hate was spread through radio. 
And this, of course, this question is sort of broader, I think, beyond Rwanda. It's just sort of, can this kind of hate speech actually induce violence? You know, if you, if you want to think of this as an experiment now, this would be a very evil experiment, but basically randomly assigning some villages to listen to the, to the, to the broadcasts, the hate speeches, and, and some r- villages that didn't get to listen to, to it and sort of see if outcomes are different in terms of violence. Mm-hmm. I think because of the topography in Rwanda, because it's so hilly, it's actually called the land of a thousand hills, um, it more or less gives us essentially random variation in, in, in who can listen and who cannot. Basically, if there's a transmitter in one place and there's a village you know, uh, 15 kilometers away, a lot of the variation in radio signal strength would come from the line of sight mm-hmm. between the transmitter and the village happens to be... Uh, obstructed or blocked by a hill, uh, another hill. In the end, was it established that being able to listen to these radio broadcasts actually resulted in more violence than otherwise? Or? That, that's that's what I found in the paper. Yes, um, the effects were were quite the magnitude of effects were were uh, was quite large. Um, so if you compare a village, say, with no radio coverage to a village that had uh, you know full radio coverage, you saw about. 60 to 70 percent higher participation in the massacres um, in those villages. Wow. So a pretty, pretty large effect. Now, I also run a sort of a calculation trying to assess overall in the country how much of the violence can be directly attributed to the broadcasts because the radio didn't broadcast in all of the country. Uh, mm. So about 10 percent of participation, uh, I calculate, was directly caused by the radio station. So in yet another recently published paper, you focused on the role of religion on economic growth and not, well, not just economic growth, uh, happiness as well. Uh, and you used Ramadan as your case study. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about that? So we were, so if we can take a step back, we, we were, so this is together with Felipe Campante, who's another mm-hmm. associate professor at the Kennedy School. Uh, we were broadly interested in sort of how religion affects economic growth and, you know, happiness. I'll talk you know, we can talk about why we're interested in those two things sort of together. Um, but but religion sort of is a very multifaceted phenomenon, right? Um, so uh, if to narrow it down, you know, you can view this as sort of a Ramadan sort of a, a religious practice that essentially most religions have mm-hmm. in some shape or another. You know, either you're required to go on pilgrimage, uh, like the Hajj, or, you know, you're supposed to fast, or you're supposed to go to church, you know, every Sunday, or... You, there are not certain, you know, foods you can eat and so on and so forth. So mm-hmm. there are practices like that, and it's typically sort of community-wide. Everybody has to sort of follow these rules. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can easily see sort of um, sort of a theory where uh, this would affect economic outcomes by sort of um, having a direct trade-off with materially productive activities. So if I go to church, I can't work, you know, if I'm... Mm-hmm. Um, if I'm praying five times a day, you know, that's going to take time, you know, from other materially productive activities. Mm-hmm. So you can sort of see, and if everybody's sort of in the country or a lot of people in a given country does this at the time, you can sort of see that it could have macroeconomic effects and sort of economic growth. Mm-hmm. At the same time, um, we think it's interesting to, to look at happiness because, you know, it may not be, you know, the money, th- everything in the world. And, and, right. and, and so even though you can maybe expect a negative effect on, on incomes, economic growth, uh, maybe people are not sort of less happy as a result, uh, but could potentially be more happy as a result. And how do you count, how do you measure happiness? Uh, so um, so we didn't, we, we used existing sort of established surveys. Mm-hmm. Um, so we sort of use, there's a big, 
question out there exactly how you should measure happiness. So we sort of use the standard ones, which is, um, for example, by World Value Survey, uh, which is done in sort of 100 plus countries, I think, or some somewhere in that range. Uh, mm-hmm. And they've asked people for a couple of decades sort of mm-hmm. about their happiness levels. So the, the good thing is, I think since you have multiple surveys from each country, you can actually compare within country over time. So maybe the notion of happiness could differ from country to country, but within we're sort of looking within countries over time and looking at the impact of Ramadan. So in so just to come back to Ramadan, sure. Ramadan is longer in some years and shorter in some years. And by that, I mean the, the, the length of day from sunrise to sunset depends on what time of year Ramadan occurs. Right. And Ramadan sort of occurs in different moments in time uh, in different countries in different years because it follows the, in the Islamic calendar. So it mm-hmm. sort of gives us a natural experiment in, in the strictness of this practice. So how many hours you have to fast um, over, over time. And so, what was the what was the result? How so it was a pretty to... strong negative effect on economic growth. Um, while at the same time, we find a pretty strong positive effect on, on happiness and life satisfaction. Um, so, um, so it sort of I don't want to say go against this view that sort of money buys happiness because you know there's certainly good reasons to believe that that's the case. But at least in this context, it seems that people become poorer. Um, but happier, nevertheless. So how were you able to isolate Ramadan in particular? And were you looking just at Muslims all around the country or, I'm sorry, all around the world? Yep. So so um, for the economic growth uh, analysis, we use uh, data from all Muslim-majority countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the um, happiness data, we, we can look at all the surveyed Muslims uh, in the world in this data set, which is... Uh, more than 100,000 individuals. Um, um, so we can we have lots of data from lots of countries. Of course, most Muslims tend to live in Muslim-majority countries. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so that's that's what we looked at. So, and, and these are sort of the average effects across you know all of these countries. How exactly would it um, pull down the uh, economic growth of that particular country? Mm. Um, I mean, where, where would you see that? Right, so there, we sort of had a few hypotheses sort of potential mechanisms in mind for why there could be negative growth effects. One is sort of a productivity channel where if you're, by the way, we're not just looking at economic growth during Ramadan. We're looking at during the entire year. Right. Um, um, but so the productivity sort of hypothesis would be that because you're not, you're sort of drinking properly, so to speak, you're getting dehydrated uh, and nutrition goes down, uh, maybe you're sort of less productive as a worker and therefore mm-hmm. sort of income suffer as a result. Um, the other alt- hypothesis is that it sort of goes through a labor supply channel, which is that uh, people may choose to work less, um, not only during Ramadan, but throughout the year. And we find evidence actually in favor of the second hypothesis rather than the first. This doesn't seem to be the case that the effects are driven by this productivity channel primarily, but rather the labor supply channel. We look at survey data in terms of values and we find that people report um, that in years when Ramadan is very long and very sort of strict, uh, Mm -hmm. actually people prioritize different things in life. So they prioritize work less, they self-report, they think family is more important. different sort of non-labor aspects of life. Um, so we sort of see this shift in values regarding the work-life balance at the same time as we see people working less. They're happier as a result, but they're also poorer. 
if higher incomes mean greater happiness, there must be some kind of uh, balance or at least some kind of point at which there are diminishing returns on, uh, you know, the value of religion to promote happiness. So we can't really answer that question. But I hope that at least we inspire sort of people to maybe look into those questions, Mm -hmm. you know, in the future. Um, I think what, what we learn is that even if there's this negative income effect, and even if n- income, w- lower income in of itself has sort of a negative uh, happiness effect, if you will, that's trumped by the positive effect of this increased religious strictness, mm-hmm. increased sort of religious participation. Interesting. Yeah. Well, uh, Harvard Kennedy School Associate Professor uh, David Yanagazawa Drott, thank you so much for coming on Policy Cats. Thanks for having me, Matt. If you'd like to read more about any of the topics we spoke about, uh, you can find links to all of Professor Yanagazawa Drott's papers on his page at the Harvard Kennedy School Faculty Research Connection. We'll have a link in the show notes. HKS PolicyCast is produced by Matt Cadwallader and Molly Lanzarota. Special thanks to those who help get us out there every week, including Catherine Serafin at Harvard, as well as Ellen Clegg and Nicole Hernandez at the Boston Globe. And to you for listening in. See you next week. You've been listening to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. You can subscribe to PolicyCast on iTunes, Stitcher, and elsewhere by visiting hkspolicycast.org. And let us know what you think on Twitter 